0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Back to School with Maz Jobrani. I am so excited. I studied political science in college, and today we've got someone who has written a book about politics, about political science. The book is about the National Security Council. It's called White House Warriors. It's super interesting. It's the people who advise the president on foreign policy. It's just right up my alley, and it's super exciting, super interesting, check it out the professor his name is professor john gans from the university of pennsylvania he was a speechwriter at the pentagon now he's written this book on that the national security council he's here today to talk to us about the history of the nsc um, the kinds of people that have been in it the things they've done including iran contra including the ukraine scandal that's going on now all kinds of stuff Uh, He's also here to tell us about how you can become a speechwriter in Washington, D.C., if one day you choose to write speeches for these politicians. And he's going to tell us why nobody likes John Bolton. That and more right now on Back to School with Maz Brani. Maz Brani, hey, Jobrani Maz, oh, Maz Brani,
1: hey, Jobrani.
0: I a
1: Oh back
0: to school. Yeah. Alright guys, so excited today. We've got uh, White House Warriors author, John Gans. How are you, Caitlin? I'm
1: good. How are you?
0: I'm well, Tehran.
1: I mean, I'm okay. I don't know how well I am when it comes to this kind of stuff. I'm always afraid to hear. Well, about
2: you know, it. it's, how bad it actually is.
0: Listen, it's 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 a it always boggles my mind because a lot of times people go, "Oh, nobody Americans don't care about the ins and outs. They're not listening to the impeachment trial. They're not uh, interested in our foreign policy." A lot of people, and and I get it. People are busy. People aren't. Um, able to spend that much time reading about every different country right there's protests in hong kong why it's i don't not know just
1: that we're busy it's that we have the it's privilege after white privilege it's american privilege we're privileged to mm-hmm. not have to deal with anything when attacks happen they rarely happen if ever on american soil mm-hmm. we really don't have to deal with all the problems that we cause and or are a part of we don't true very
0: true and 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 i wonder like for me i don't know if it's just because as i've gotten older or what but i have become super interested in any kind of political geographic uh Uh, uh, historical, I really love reading about this stuff. So, again, like, for example, I just said Hong Kong. Like, when the protests were happening in Hong Kong, I'm going, why? I want to find out. One of the reasons we're doing this show is Back to School with Maz Brani is to bring people to teach us about everything that's going on in these places. And today, this gentleman, uh, Professor John Gans, has written about... The National Security Council, which to me is just super interesting. That's where John Bolton was, uh, these guys that advise the president, these guys that are not guys and girls that aren't, uh, don't have to be approved by Congress. So basically, the guy who becomes president, whether it's Trump, Obama, Clinton, Bush, whoever it is, can show up and go, I want these guys advising me. Brings them in, no one's got to prove them. And then, depending on where these guys are, these advisors have been politically their whole lives, they can come in. For example, one guy could be like, you know what? I've ever since I went to Cyprus that one time and they held me in and you know they interrogated they, me at the airport not i've not been to, trying to bomb cyprus let's go bomb cyprus they
1: downgraded my hotel room they <laughs> downgraded yeah. my hotel room let's go bomb cyprus i mean so basically it yeah. could be anybody but that's yeah. the thing about politics politics for the most part is really a wwe match is how we feel it's I'm, personal i'm yeah. the good guy they're the bad guy let's that get ready to rumble
2: that justifies anything that we do yeah for me it was it was surprising because Everything that we've heard about, like the Trump cabinet and the Trump campaign, it's like everyone seems psycho to me. And then when we hear these people on the on the National Security Council testifying, uh, when they testified in front of the House, like Fiona Hill, I was like, wait a second, there's normal people in there that are like seeing what's going on. Like I'm surprised that more people. Like them have not come forward and been like, guys, I gotta tell you what's going
1: on. This is they wacky. have jobs. They have jobs, yeah. and also
0: there's protocol, right? Yeah. So it's like when you write a when you sign a non-disclosure ag- agreement, right. you can't leave that job and then go write a book about it. Mm-hmm. So that's where the negotiations happen. That's where, as Tehran just said, you're in the job. I mean, a lot of people when you hear about people saying, oh. Um, Trump's foreign policy, it's all over the place, this, that, the other, or you hear about Mm -hmm. the tariffs, isn't anybody telling him not to do it? Well, a lot of people are inside, supposedly what happened with John Kelly, who was the chief of staff, his thought was, I'm going to serve my country and try and avoid any major issues from happening. I'm going to be an advisor to Trump. I'm going to control the chaos. Mm -hmm. And as you said, a lot of times people go inside and they go, oh my god, I can't control the chaos, so they leave. Um, so listen learning about these National Security Council people, like you said, the Fiona Hills, the, the Vindmans, mm-hmm. the whoever else was testifying there, you do. You sit there and you go, wow, these people are really well-educated. They're very well-informed on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet we still don't get it right. Well,
1: there's a it's lot of book chaos. smart people. Uh, we don't know how much common sense is going in there. Let's be very honest. And a lot of times when you read about something in a book, it's not a real app applicable study it's not the true case study so a lot of people who have no on-ground experience simply academic experience are giving advice about things that happen on the ground
0: right in theory you should do this this and this but then when for example let's take the surge with the with isis and all that stuff that happened in 2006 and and uh uh, john gans is going to tell us about that When we had gone to war with Iraq, which now, in retrospect, a lot of people go, well, how? Who who advised that? Because of the mess that it caused, then that creates, yeah, then that creates ISIS, and then ISIS is making a push. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and ISIS Mm -hmm. making a push, and then, as John Gans writes in this book, there is a National Security Advisor who, before anybody else had said, had said, she comes out and says, "We need more troops on the ground to fight." to fight uh, uh, the, the, the insurgency. And, um, and as you said, that's a theory. Mm-hmm. And the generals are going, this girl no. is out of her mind. <laughs> but then a little while later, they go, oh, wait, we should have been doing this a year ago whenever that time was. So you're right. Sometimes these people live in the theoretical world and their practical knowledge isn't as applicable. But mm-hmm. then sometimes it is. It's just all in all, it's to me, it's super interesting because you realize yeah. these people are human beings. And you realize that we thought we were, you know, in control and people were taking care of stuff, but you realize it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm more anxious now than ever because every day it seems like there's a new enemy. It's North Korea. It's Iran. It's Russia. It's China. And it doesn't feel like it's kind
1: of the same four. They kind of just kind recycle. of the same four. You're right. They you're right. kind of just recycle. Venezuela, Venezuela yeah. gets in there. From Venezuela time Venezuela gets in, yeah. and then every now and then we're like, we forget.
0: Listen, guys, uh, enjoy the episode. Uh, tell your friends about the show. Give us some good reviews. Help us move up in the in you know on iTunes. So more and more people find us. Uh, You can write me at Maz Giobrani. Let me know your thoughts. Recently, someone wrote me and said that they've been listening. They've enjoyed it. And uh, they said that the uh, Ozzy episode, our artist, she said that was their favorite episode. Mm. Let us know what your favorite episodes are. Let us know what other guests you want us to have on. So just write me at Maz Giobrani on all social media platforms. I'm touring. uh, So find my dates. Majobrani.com. Caitlin, how do they contact you?
2: At Y2Kate, K-A-I-T underscore on Instagram.
0: Tehran?
1: At I am Tehran all across
0: the board. All right, let's go find out about the National Security Council with author of uh, White House Warriors, Professor John Gans joining us right now on Back to School with Majobrani. Back to
1: School, yeah.
0: John Gans, thank you for joining us today, my man. How are you? I'm
3: doing great. How are you doing?
0: We're doing well. Thank you. I, I appreciate you putting, because we don't have a copy of the book here, I appreciate you putting a copy of the book right behind you. Right if People look right there. There it is. White House Warriors by John Gans. That's a, I, I'm excited. You know, um, I studied political science in college, so I'm all about this. When I heard about this book, <laughs> I thought this was fantastic, and uh, we're really excited to have you on. Thanks for taking the time.
3: I always anyway great to be here.
0: so john let's just go ahead and get started with my son i told him all I, listen my, my son starts my son or daughter sometimes both start with a question for the interview and i just tell them who the person is and what they've done so i said that you wrote this book on the national security council he's 11 years old and then he comes up with his own question so here's the question that he came up with when i told him that you were a former speechwriter at the pentagon and you wrote this book so here's this question you ready
2: Hi, Mr. Gans, I have two questions for you. The first one is: Have you ever advised going to war with a different country? And the second one is: ha- Are you a hawk? Do you consider yourself as a hawk or a dove?
0: Ah, uh, what do you think of that, John? Right out Whoa. the gate, eleven. <laughs> out eleven. the gate, he's asking the questions,
1: man. He goes to that's, private that's school. That's rough. So I have a
3: three-year-old. I have a three-year-old. Uh, and a one-year-old, so I'm not quite at
0: hawk and dove <laughs> questions
3: for my children. But right. I, I, I hope if I raise them right, they will ask those sorts of questions when I'm 11. Yeah. So the que- so two questions. So uh, good questions. I would say I never advised going to war with anybody right. uh, when I was writing speeches for the Secretary of Defense. The one thing I'd say is that we were sort of a weird time. So I was there from 2014. Mm-hmm to 2017. So sort of an odd time.
0: Yeah, you saw a little bit uh, of Obama and you saw a little bit of Trump.
3: Yeah, just a little bit of Trump. And so sort of an odd time in terms of like people to go to war with. Right. So we were I joined just as the ISIS stuff and the Islamic State stuff was sort of catching fire Uh um, in the Middle East. And so that was sort of one of those ones that we ended up being deeply engaged with that I probably would have been l- like less vocal about, just because I'm sort of, uh, to answer the second question, probably in Pentagon terms, more dovish. Right. Uh, probably in terms of human terms, I'm probably a little more hawkish. But when you spend your days walking around the Pentagon, I would definitely be considered a little dovish. And I was called dovish a few times. Uh, one of the more interesting things about working in the Pentagon is That often you'll go there and there's protesters. It's probably one of the few places you'll go that's regularly protested. And it was protested by Quakers and people who genuinely believe that the Pentagon is a force for destruction in the world. And so you'd get off the metro, off the subway, and you would have to walk by people who were telling you you were a a baby killer, uh, you know, wreaking havoc on the world. So uh, I wasn't sort of a protester, but in terms of sort of asking hard questions and suggesting occasionally that military intervention didn't solve all the world's ills i was a bit of an outlier at the pentagon
0: so you were getting yelled at every time you went to work it's almost like being on twitter but in live in the Mm -hmm. world like Mm -hmm. you know you get yelled at at twitter you were getting yelled at in the world on your way to work
1: in dc they have quakers here we have vegans so it's very similar yes Yes. you know baby killer
3: Yeah. Sometimes they, the Venn diagram overlaps where you get the vegans and the Quakers, since <laughs> yes. I live in Philadelphia, uh, and get and get a fair number of Quakers here. But it was always interesting. I mean, I think uh, the one difference, I guess, is that you can sign off of Twitter, but you still have to get up and go to work most days, especially at the Pentagon, because it's the kind of place that requires you to show up and they don't mess around. So it was kind of a fun job, but uh, definitely sort of an interesting one to sort of, I wrote this book as a dissertation before I went into the Defense Department. Wow. And then came out, and this was like the first thing I did. I, we, I had a, in December of 2016, so the, the election was decided, I had my first kid and I decided I was going to write my first book, which looking back on it was insane. But I got up almost every morning in January of 2017 and February, wrote the book proposal and then sold the book, I think the first week I got out of government or second week I got out
0: of government. That's amazing. Now, listen, just just since this is a, a, a show where people, it's all about going back to school, it's about learning. I want to just rewind for a second and ask, because there's people listening right now and they go, first of all. One first question I have is: How does one become a speechwriter at the uh, at the department at, uh, um, at at the Pentagon or for anyone? How do you? How does one? Be, is you can't just do you apply? Is it? Do you go to Craigslist and the jobs are listed? And how the, did,
1: specifically yeah. for the Secretary of Defense?
0: Yeah. So uh, so
3: the, well, you can look at my life and say the bar must be very low. You
1: <laughs> know, um, and
3: say it's it's not that hard a job to get you know, speech writers sort of an odd job. It's, 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 it's probably more similar to sort of, you know, screenwriting and those sorts of things in the sense of there's a little bit of a guild to it, right? There's a sort of group of folks who sort of do it as a real profession. Like that's what they sort of get into on campaigns and, and they sort of work at speechwriting shops. And then there's the other side of it, which is sort of like people who are more sort of subject matter experts who can also write, who sort of get into it. And so, I was of the latter category, um, though I worked on campaigns and worked for, um, like I worked for Nancy Pelosi while I was doing my PhD, when she was Speaker of the House, I worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign before I went to grad school. And so I sort of knew that world, but I was definitely much more of a, I was somebody who had written on war and um, was somebody who was known in democratic circles. So sometimes you'll see speechwriter jobs advertised, but for the most part they're sort of jobs that the administration and the White House picks based on political loyalties and sort of trust that you can sort of communicate and operate on the company line. And so the usually the White House helps determine a small list that will go to the Secretary of Defense, he'll talk to them, uh, maybe his people will talk to them, maybe they'll have a writing test. It's one of the few jobs that there's an actual substantive test for in government where you have to actually sit there and, You know, usually get like three days to write a speech for somebody that you've never met or or uh, heard of, you know, in some cases you've never heard of. Then you have to hand it in. And and in my particular case, it was very funny because I wrote the speech um, for Chuck Hagel, who was the secretary of defense at the time. And I remember thinking, I wonder how that went. I didn't know. And I wasn't sure. And I came in for the interview and then weeks went by. And I remember saying, oh, maybe the test wasn't very good. And I tuned in one day to uh, TV, and and Chuck Hagel was using one of my lines. <laughs> like, oh, well, nice! Oh my God! I was like, maybe the test went better than I thought. And then, it, like, literally two days later, I got the job offer. So it was very, it was very funny. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's an odd job, but it's a great job, and it's one of the few jobs in the building that lets you write on everything and work on everything because the Defense Department likes to focus on you do Asia or you do Army. Speechwriters get to do everything. Um, from like writing about sexual assault to writing about gays in the military to writing about war.
0: Um. So so you know this goes back to a lot of a lot of times on this show we remind people if you're doing what you're meant to do if you're in the world you're meant to be in people will tap you and bring you into the big leagues and that's what happened to you and there you are uh, writing speeches in the Defense Department um, at the Pentagon and again just to break it down for people the difference between the pentagon which is the which is correct me if i'm wrong it's the secretary of defense is the head of the pentagon correct yes and then you've got the state department secretary of state right yeah. yes and then we've got this thing called the national security council that you wrote about that you write about in your book and what's and these guys all are involved in foreign policy advising the president what's the difference between Someone who's in Department of uh, in, in Pentagon Department, you know, the, the State Department or the Department of Defense versus the National Security Council. What's the difference between those people?
3: So it's a, it's a great it's a great question, and it's is, you know I will try to make a complicated answer as simple as possible. Which is the biggest difference is that that if you're the Secretary of Defense, you report and serve at the pleasure of the president, um, but everybody else in the Pentagon reports to the, the sort of the Pentagon reports to the secretary of defense, where the National Security Council and those sort of people who work there, and it's about three or four hundred people, depending on the day at the NSC, at the White House, work almost completely for the president of the United States. Right. Um, and so the National Security Council itself, which is, I think, something that people appreciated, was created right after World War II. And it was created to basically get all the big names in national security together. So the president, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state. Like in the old days, they had a hard time getting all those people in one room around one table. But then they created a National Security Council to do that. And what they did, Congress said, well, if you're going to get all those big people in a room, you need somebody to help them show up on time, know what they're going to talk about, have an agenda and then know what they decided. Uh, and so they created a staff to do that. And so what's happened over the past 70 years is the council itself has become less popular with presidents, but the staff has become an arm of the presidents. And so what they've done is created an institution almost with based with base, very little legal foundation at the White House. There reports just to the president of three or four hundred people that help him make decisions, um, both big and small, like, hey, do we go to war or, hey, do I call this Head of state and wish them a happy birthday, right? So hmm. that's the people that sort of have the most power, if you consider the ear of the president the most power. Um, and the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State have to contend with the staffers who sort of sit on the NSC um, and sort of complicate their lives and, and in some cases help them. I mean, they did, they, they, they this, the staff, the NSC is the hub. And the agencies are the spokes of the wheel, right? So the military does one thing, the diplomacy does one thing. But the place everybody comes together and talks to is the National Security Council.
0: And so the other difference, correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, all of them need to be approved by Congress, whereas the people in the National Security Council do not, correct? Correct. Absolutely. So and
3: and not only just approved by Congress, they answer to Congress. So the SecDef, mm. the secretary of defense has to go up. If Congress gets fired up about something, they have to go up and answer to them. So when I worked for Ash Carter, John McCain, the senator, John McCain, the senator, would get fired up about something. And he'd call and say, hey, you got to come explain this. And there would be an open hearing. And John McCain would ask hard questions. The National Security Council, none of those people is reviewed, approved by the Congress. They are hired by the President. The National Security Advisor has never been approved by Congress um, uh, and has never been in a situation where they they can't get called up and and demanded for change, which is, you know, um, somewhat controversial today. Uh, and so it's one of those ones where it's a very unique body that operates only sort of at the pleasure of the president, um, and it sort of has helped pa- hyperpower the presidency um, that now Donald Trump sort of uh, has control over.
0: And and you uh, and, and then I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the, um, nat- the, 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 the the place that you worked at the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense, is like fourth or f- fifth in line, maybe to the president. Is that correct?
3: Uh, I don't know if it's fourth or fifth, but he's in line. But I don't know if it's where he sort of falls, but he's, he's, he's on the list, you know.
0: Okay. So, and then, and then so National Security Council, basically, the book that you write, it could be a situation where if I were to be president, I could say, listen, I want to have Tehran and Caitlin in there, and there's nothing anyone can do, correct?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's who I'd pick. I picked. Thank, exactly. thank you. God. I can't I mean,
0: wait. You're yeah. Clearly, I mean, you guys look I'm like you're ready. Super, you guys look excited. like you're ready for
3: duty. I'd put you right in. Thank uh, I mean, wasn't yeah, there yeah.
0: wasn't there some controversy with Steve Bannon coming? It wasn't hey. he as national security advisor when when we first started with Trump.
3: He was a national security advisor. Michael Flynn, uh, Michael who was uh, who was not was a national security advisor, and then uh, what. What Trump did and Flynn did is they put Bannon on one of the big committees, what's called the Principals Committee, mm-hmm. and they put basically a sort of political advisor on the what they call the Principals Committee, uh, which is sort of usually uh, the biggest names, right? So it's that includes the SecDef, that includes the director of CIA, that includes the Secretary of State, and included Steve Bannon for a while. So that was one of those things that, to Trump's credit, he did actually back off it, but he only backed off it because everybody completely lost it, right? So I, I still remember... As somebody who wrote a book about the NSC or was working on a book about the NSC, it was, I think, Sarah Silverman and and Judd Apatow and all these Hollywood celebrities were tweeting about the NSC. And I remember going, uh, never really thought that would be a subject of Hollywood conversation. But, you know, that shows you how I think important people see the NSC, even though it's really an institution that not many people have really ever Learn that much about, in part, because it's so hard to, and truthfully, so hard to write a book about it, because so much is classified, so much is is locked up, and so few, little of it is public, and and sort of told to the public.
1: Well, that's why they say your book is a must read if you want to know about Washington, because I guess the NSC is since 1947, and now only now do we actually know most of the things about it. No one cared about it before. Well, it's becoming
0: more and more popular because, first of all, we have John Bolton who is a very controversial figure who I look mm-hmm. at myself and I go this guy seems to fail up meaning <laughs> you know he was right he was wasn't he one of the lawyers that that, uh, that uh, argued for Bush in the in the elections against Gore correct
3: yeah, he was, you know, if you look down at those pictures of people holding up and judging the Chads in Florida in 2000, he was there. You can see that mustache from a mile away.
0: And then from that, he gets the ambassadorship to the United Nations. The, he becomes the American ambassador to the UN, and, and that he was there when we were going into the Iraq War. We were in the Iraq War with Bush, Correct.
3: It was after it was after we were in Iraq. Uh,
0: so it was, I think it was 2005. So it was already after. we were in.
3: But yeah, I mean, he was sort of up there and, and sort of, um, uh, you know, the, he got that job in part because nobody wanted him in Washington. Um, Condi Rice didn't want him in, at, at the State Department headquarters. And in part because... Nobody in the Senate would confirm him for a bigger job, and he couldn't get confirmed for that job. And uh, you know, George W. Bush had used use a uh, what they call a recess appointment to basically um, super, basically do an end run on the state Senate to kind of give him the job. So nobody wanted him in Washington. Really, nobody wanted him in a high power position, but he still got one.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so, so nobody liked John <laughs> Bolton. It's anyway. actually an interesting situation because I remember John Bolton first came to my attention when around 2006, there was uh, the the latest, uh, there was some conflict going on in in Lebanon where the Israelis were um, fighting the uh, Hezbollah and it was starting to heat up. And I think a lot of people were hoping that the Bush administration would come out and call for a ceasefire between the Israelis and... So
1: basically, it was a Tuesday? <laughs> it was a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. No, but it was... <laughs> a to any, any to any Tuesday. No, but it was...
0: It was hitting, and, and the Israelis were bombing into southern Lebanon and hitting buildings, and they were saying, we're going after Hezbollah, and Hezbollah was saying, you're getting innocent people, and then the Israelis were saying, well, Hezbollah's hiding in these buildings. So it was just this this, this horrible situation of innocent people getting killed, and America, I thought, should have come out and said, guys, stop fighting, but John Bolton, as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, said we're not going to call for a ceasefire because we don't know what that would achieve, and and it upset me because I go you don't know what that would achieve. You're America. You can you know, <laughs> and and you and you're at the United Nations that could put some pressure on these guys stopping this escalation. So that's when he first came to my view, and then to see him because I know he's very hawkish. Then he comes into the Trump administration, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about. The conflict that he had with with Trump and and what led to his leaving. And now, as someone who's watching this impeachment trial, I think all of a sudden he becomes this potential hero for the Democrats who are trying to, uh, you know, get rid of Trump. So bring us, tell us a little bit about John Bolton and, and his multiple lives.
3: Yeah, I mean, John Bolton is sort of, you know, I mean, a singular sort of character in the past 30 or 40 years of American foreign policy. I mean, he's a kid who grew up, I guess, in Baltimore and sort of had parents who sort of aspired for him to do great things. And he worked his way through, you know, Yale Law School and and ended up becoming, uh, uh, um, graduating, I guess. He was a Nixon White House intern, um, which sort of tells you when he was sort of coming out of law school. But it also tells you a little bit about his politics, which is that he sort of came out of the 1970s not sort of believing that the United States should be chastened by Vietnam and not believing that the presidency was a sort of a risky sort of job for people, but to, he believed that the United States not only needed to go harder abroad, but that the power of the presidency should be increased. And so he sort of developed a name for himself uh, in politics and in Washington Republican circles for sort of being a hard nosed fighter for both America's interests abroad, but also the power of the presidency. And so you know, um, he worked in the Reagan administration and pushed against efforts to try and investigate Iran Contra, which is another sort of dark chapter in the NSC's history. Uh, and so he was a guy that just never made friends and he has this classic comment about him, which is that, you know, he, you know, he kisses up and he kicks down. So he was, hmm. you know, has, has been reportedly a terrible manager sort of, but also somebody who was a very good bureaucratic infighter. Um, and so after the Bush administration, sort of classic example. So he he George W. Bush gave him this job at the United Nations. Probably when you heard about him, and when a lot of people learned about him, and he became sort of not a household name, but certainly became better known than he was. And immediately after he got out of the out of the job at the UN, he wrote a book criticizing George W. Bush. Huh. Right, kind of kind of bit the hand that had fed him for, for eight years, and the Bush family had fed him for even longer than that. So there was a great line that at the end of the Bush administration, somebody asked me, George, H, George W. Bush, about Bolton, and Bolton said, and George Bush said, I don't find John Bolton credible, um, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, flash forward now to the Trump administration, and I mean, people will forget that Bolton thought about running for president himself. This is not a guy that lacks for ego. Um, and so he wanted to come in and be a big wig in the Trump administration, and he was one of those Republicans that didn't sort of oppose Trump, uh, and certainly didn't, um, sort of helped him run for office and run for the presidency. And when he got in, I think he wanted the big jobs, but the two things that sort of held him back were one, he couldn't get confirmed right? Hmm. There was no way they thought Congress would confirm him for a big job, right? He had made so many enemies over the years, including with the Republicans, that they didn't think he could get confirmed. And the second thing is, you know, uh, speaking of Hollywood, like, they didn't, but Trump didn't think he looked the part, right? He didn't think he looked huh. like a Secretary of State with his mustache. So there was at one point, some sort of line about Bolton should shave his mustache and he would get a big job. Now, he didn't do that. What Bolton instead did was just go on Fox News every night and defend the president's foreign policies and say that his advisors were stupid. And that ended up being a pretty good job interview uh, and ended up getting the job as national security advisor after Trump got sick of uh, his second national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. So he got hired um, based on his defense of the president. um, But he he, I think Donald Trump really didn't do his due diligence. Or remember that John Bolton has one bit every hand that's ever fed him, and two disagreed with him violently on matters of Iran, North Korea, things along those lines. And it sounds as though, um, in all reports and my interviews, suggest that when John Bolton was in there, he didn't stop uh, making life difficult for Donald Trump. Uh, and eventually, uh, he sort of fell out of favor with Donald Trump, and and Trump pushed him out uh, in September September 10th. Uh, and they couldn't even agree over how the dismissal happened. Right. So Bolton claims he quit. Trump claims he fired him. Um, and you know, we're all sort of, we, nobody's ever gotten to the bottom of it. So it's one of these things that's like, uh, it happens, but nobody can really figure out the truth. And now we find, you know, John Bolton as, uh, Donald Trump is up for on trial in the U.S. Senate. John Bolton has decided to sort of strike for a bit of payback and strike for a bit of payday. So selling his book and also sort of sticking the knife in Donald Trump here um, at the last possible minute to impact the the impeachment proceedings on the Hill.
0: A couple of things came to mind. First of all, you said that Trump wanted uh, Bolton to shave the mustache to look the part as a Middle Eastern actor. I get the opposite. They go, "Do you mind growing a mustache or a beard so that you look the part of the terrorist?" And I go, "No, I really don't. But I'm I'm actually growing yeah, a beard now." But
3: I I can't grow one. So, <laughs> I, you know, more power to you. I, you know, good God bless you.
0: Thank you. Um uh, you um a couple of things. One you one thing I read that you pointed out. You said that that dispute of Bolton whether he quit or whether he was fired. And one of the things you wrote, you said that that that, that the, the strategy that Trump used by, first of all, these two guys both have egos. But secondly, the, the strategy of saying, no, no, I fired him, was to set up what he knew probably was coming down the line, which was Bolton was going to spill the beans on whatever was going on behind the scenes. So he wanted to set him up as a disgruntled worker, correct?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my hunch. I mean, the, the dark Donald Trump's dark gift is that he sort of understands the basest instincts of humanity and sort of somehow brings out that piece of everybody and i think he always assumes that somebody's going to have this sort of vengeful sort of approach in part because that's how Donald Trump works so i think he definitely set bolton up and definitely sort of wanted to get out there ahead of bolton uh and to sort of blame him you know make everything he's going to say sour grapes uh and that's you you sort of see that on the hill right now sort of in the as the sort of uh times and others have sort of covered what bolton supposedly writes in his book you know, Republicans are pushing back saying, hey, this is a disgruntled employee. These are sour grapes. And, you know, it's an effective t- tool. Uh, and it's one that other presidents have used. Uh, and so it's probably one of the more presidential things
0: Donald Trump's done. So going to that with your, with your, you were talking about the National Security Council. And tell us a little bit about, um, you know, are, are they supposed to be there to just agree with the president? Or are they supposed to be there to push back? And what are some examples of, someone that works on the national national security council pushing back and do we know of a time when they pushed back and the president said you know what you're right i'm wrong i'm going to listen to you or is it usually oh i don't like you get out of here
3: yeah so i mean you really can't survive very well working for anybody in washington if you like just violently disagree with them all the time so you know you can kind of you what you get away with and i sort of this is something i learned um working for a speechwriter you know you can't write something that that the person's gonna disagree with. But over the course of working together and over the course of several speeches, you can slowly sort of help them see new things, bring new evidence to light, maybe change, evolve their views a little bit. Um, And so generally speaking, anybody that works for a president is on the same page with the president. Uh, What they typically have is, and what they typically, where you see the differences is, is a timing, right? So typically the staff, is focused on these things more than anything else. And the staffs really is divided between sort of two things. One is regional stuff. So, you know, if you're the Iraq director or you're working on Russia, you are reading everything about Russia all day long. You're reading the latest Intel, you're reading newspapers, you're talking to people in Russia and elsewhere, you're, the world's leading expert on that because you are at the center of the biggest power on earth with most resources available and you can find out anything or just about anything at the drop of a hat. The president has a thousand things on his plate, right? And maybe he spends a few, an hour or two on foreign policy a day if it's not a crazy day. foreign policy crisis day, right? And maybe a minute of that is Russia or five minutes of that is Russia. So what you have is, is that these experts typically are ahead of the president on what's going on in on the ground. So you saw that during the Iraq war, where um, you had staffers who were pushing George W. Bush to do a surge well in advance of the search. I write about it in the book, a woman named Megan O'Sullivan, who's this amazing character. I mean, she's somebody who sort of grew up in Massachusetts, you know, with this bright red hair and as a two-year-old got interested in Israel and Palestine issues, right? Which is kind of insane, but that's the story and her parents vouch for it. And so she sort of got into this and went on and got her undergrad degree at Georgetown, went to Oxford for a PhD uh, did, worked on the Hill for a senator, worked at the Brookings Institution, then went into government right after nine eleven, and she got so interested in sort of the nine eleven issues and and post and the global war on terror. Went to Iraq as a civilian. She served in Iraq. Was on the first convoy into Baghdad after the invasion in two thousand three, and so she became just sort of the the country's leading expert on the Iraq War. And when things started to go bad in two thousand six, she pushed almost to the point of really upsetting the president and everybody in Washington for sending more troops to Iraq. And most people in Washington didn't want to do that. But slowly over the course of months as events changed on the ground, she was able to convince the president to search. And she and a couple colleagues did that, even though the commanders on the ground in Iraq, uh, one of them used to call her the 5,000 yard mile screwdriver, because he would just say, she's always needling and trying to get me to do things. Uh, You know, the secretary of state Condi rice the, the joint chiefs of staff none of them wanted to surge but george w bush listened to megan o'sullivan
0: and sort of eventually got to where she wanted him to go so, so these people can be that- i'm sorry so these people can be influential and you brought up the iraq war here and here's my question to you on that was there anyone from your studies cuz as as someone who is uh, you know iranian american and i'm looking at the iraq war back in 2003 when we started and, I, and, and they kept saying, oh, they're going to welcome us with flowers. They're, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be easy. It's going to be no problem. And as and, and I'm sitting there strategically going, if America was really worried about Iran getting uh, stronger in the region by getting rid of Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni leading a country that was a majority Shiite, and it's a country next to Iran, which is the biggest Shiite country— it just seems like basic logic that if we get rid of the guy who's controlling the country next to them, that the Iranians will come in and fill that power vac- uh, void and, and take you know be more, more influential. Was anyone on the Bush team of, from the NSC or anywhere going, guys, this is going to be messy? Did anyone think of that or were they, were they thinking, no, this is actually fine because we'll get in and then Halliburton will go in and we'll make a lot of money and let's just move forward?
3: well I think you you know it's sort of similar to your son's question right which is there were certainly more dovish people in the in the in the bush sort of camp, right? And certainly people who were more of the, hey, this won't be that easy. You know, um, there's a, there's that classic example of, um, and I always forget the general's name, um, but he basically came out and said, hey, this is going to take hundreds of thousands of troops and he got fired, right? Um, there was an American general who basically came out and said that and Don Rumsfeld had him fired. So there were certainly people who thought it was going to be harder than everybody thought. Um, there weren't, I, I, I'd be hard pressed to find somebody who came out and predicted in government. That it was gonna go as bad as it did, and it
1: was a terrible huh. idea. I you think probably should most have asked people... Caitlin and Tehran, we would have told them. Yep. Yes, my NSC <laughs> would have told that them. Was their flaw. You know, that's why we need you. That's why <laughs>
3: that's why we need you guys on the team. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, but I think it's one of those ones where you know, I think we do forget. And I I sort of teach students now at the University of Pennsylvania who were not born on 9 11 So it sort of tells you how young and how long ago that was. To two things I sort of remind people is number one, Saddam Hussein was, like, the Osama bin Laden of, uh, like, 15 years of American foreign policy, starting in 1990, right? So there's a long lead up to this, where he was the obvious boogeyman in the Middle East for for years. He was the obvious boogeyman for a lot of people in the Bush administration well before they came into office. Um, And the second thing is the 9-11 was not, um, I think, um, did not produce America's greatest foreign policy decisions and created a lot of fear and created a lot of determination to do something, um, but not always the wisdom to do the right thing, um, you know? And I think you see that over and over again. I mean, you know, the decision to go to a walk was a terrible one, but you know, it's just like the decision to torture, which, you know, um, and do those sorts of things. Like we made a lot of really bad decisions, um, some of them weren't done out of sort of uh, real desire to do harm, but they were done out of sort of um, a desire to do something. And and that's what I write about in the book. So I think there's a tendency in Washington towards the do something, and that something in, usually involves military action. And I'm a little bit more of a maybe we don't do anything and see what happens. But what about know, so now? that's right.
1: What about now? Are we going down the same path with the with the NSC and and maybe trying to do something? And going down the wrong. path. What are you talking about with, with, with Iran? Iran with Iran, but just in general, our yeah. foreign policy.
0: Yeah, with with Iran, and yeah. also, and also, I think if you speak to the, I think that was one of the conflicts Syria? between. Well, that was one of the conflicts between Bolton and Trump, where Trump, you know, had come into pres- the presidency saying that he wanted not to get into more wars, mm-hmm. but now we have more troops in the Middle East than we did before he came in. But Bolton was always pushing for aggressive reactions to Iran, right? So we do yep. find ourselves, as Tehran said, in a place where we seem to be headed in that direction. What are your thoughts? Are we?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think what you see right now in government is similar to Iraq in, in one important respect, which is you're in a place where nobody seems to be able to agree on much in Washington. There's a real breakdown of conversations in Washington. That would have been hard with Donald Trump anyway. He's just not the type of, leader and president we've had in the past, right? He's just not a meeting guy. He's not a deliberation guy. He's not a, you know, that's just not who he is. And so we've had a lot of this sort of the system that the National Security Council has worked on over 70 years has sort of broken down. Uh, and so what you happen, what happens in that, and it's similar to what happened in the, in the W. Bush administration, which is, that, you know, Condi Rice and George W. Bush and Don Rumsfeld and Colin Powell and Dick Cheney, they all disagreed so much that the sort of conversation broke down. What you see in those moments where everything breaks down is that the only thing that they tend to meet on is the thing they all agree on. <laughs> Does that make sense? So it's very easy right now. As I talk to people in Washington and in the the government, they say, it's very easy to get a meeting on Iran because everybody kind of agrees Iran's bad, right? Um, And it's kind of hysterically funny, but also dramatically scary because it's the only thing that Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, the the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the National Security Advisor all agree on is Iran is bad. And so they are able to get together in a meeting about that. Um, and so I think it's one of those ones where that's where I sort of worry is that government sort of begins to realize that the, the only thing they can agree on is to, the need to do something on Iran. Um, and in this particular instance, um, they actually used some of John Bolton's sort of ideas, right? So he was frustrated that Donald Trump wasn't taking harder action in Iran against Iran a year ago. And what he did was he basically developed a bunch of options that were ready and on the shelf. And so the minute something bad happened, they could just pull him off and they put him in front of Trump. And he got pissed about something and launched this strike, uh, which seemed both underconsidered, but also sort of poorly staffed uh, right around the holidays.
0: So it's interesting because, again, as an Iranian American, I feel like sometimes I go, can't Iran just stay out of the news for one day? I mean, it's (laughs) like we've been doing this for so long. And then you talk about Iran-Contra. And the similarities between Iran-Contra and what we're seeing with Ukraine now in that, because one thing you you noted in one of the things you wrote, you said that the current impeachment hearings are not like uh, um, Nixon or Clinton. Clinton's thing was uh, matters of a personal matter. Uh, Nixon's uh, uh, issue was matters of an internal matter within the Mm -hmm. country, and now Trump's thing you're saying with the Ukrainian, what's what's going on with Ukraine, is similar to Iran-Contra, you said, because they were running a rogue uh, um, diplomacy—or not diplomacy, a, a rogue foreign policy that was outside of what the government uh, uh, path is supposed to be. They had their own thing going with Iran-Contra. Now they had their own thing going with Ukraine, and the, one of the differences you point out in, in what I read was— that the difference was with Iran-Contra, Reagan comes out and says, I want you to know the truth. So they released 50,000 pages of documents related to Iran-Contra. And in this case, in Ukraine, they have been uh, obstructing any kind of evidence coming out and they have released 21 pages. Is that correct?
3: Yeah. So at the, I think at the time I wrote the piece, it was like 21 pages. They've released a few more, but it's not many. Right. So right. It's, it's very few more. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that it's different in two particular respects. The first is that genuinely speaking, as dumb as Iran-Contra was, and it was a totally harebrained scheme that was run um, by um, Oliver North and a few other NSC staffers, is that there was like some genuine legitimate objective for it, which was to get hostages out of Iran, right? There were American hostages that were taken and they were suffering in, in, in Iranian custody. And so they, the goal was to get them out. What and was the, kind of just real quickly
0: it. before you go on, what was it? It was the, yeah. the, can you explain who was giving what to whom for what real quickly? Yeah. Just the, uh, you know, Iran-Contra for dummies?
3: <laughs> Iran-Contra and for dummies in one minute. So Iran-Contra for dummies in one minute is that Oliver North was hired by the NSC, uh, the National Security Council, and uh, he got interested in trying to support the Contras, which were fighting the communist government in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. But the Congress had basically come out and said the US government couldn't support them. And what he basically said was what Congress had determined was the CIA couldn't do that. But nobody said the NSC couldn't do it because Mm -hmm. nobody had ever expected the NSC to do it. So he basically used uh, an office at the White House, went out and got private funding and supported a sort of guerrilla war in Nicaragua. And then a year and a half later, uh, a bunch of folks said, hey, why don't we try and get the hostages out of Iran? And we'll have to do it really quietly, so let's give it to Oliver North. So Ali North was given this second job, which was to try and convince people in Iran to give up the hostages. And the people in Iran said, hey, we'll do it if you give us weapons. And so he basically said, okay, and they took weapons. He flew to Iran at one point with a Canadian passport and a cake that he had had baked in the shape of a key because he wanted it to look like they were opening the door to a new era of friendship. And he flew in there and he basically sold these weapon parts to um, Iran. Now, where he got into trouble is he basically then took the money from Iran and gave it to the Contras, which is where he sort of broke the law uh, that Congress had set and sort of set off this firestorm. And so what's different about that is like, generally speaking, the US government, it was committed to getting the hostages out and sort of broadly committed to the cause of fighting communism. This thing is different because One, Donald Trump looks more like Oliver North than he does like Ronald Reagan because he's running this scheme out of the White House. Mm -hmm. And two, this is not about legitimate foreign policy objectives, but in fact, the president's own personal political interests, which is to sort of look for dirt on um, Joe Biden and his son. So it's sort of he, he's trading arms in this America's U, America's military might um, in terms of support for Ukraine in order to try and get personal dirt for his, his political campaign. And so that's the sort of big piece uh, in terms of the difference between the two. But the differences between the fallout from the two is that the White House basically said, you know what? it's in our interest to tell this story as best we can. And they worked and went out over time to try and sort of explain it, to sort of cooperate with Congress. They let uh, Ollie North and everybody else testify. Um, And just like minutes ago, the White House formally threatened John Bolton that he couldn't even publish his book about it. So they're so uninterested in uh, in cooperating that they won't even let somebody write a book about it. Um, And so it's one of those ones where we've entered sort of uncharted territory in many ways, both in terms of the fundamental crime of misusing and misappropriating America's sort of um, government resources for your political campaign, but also in trying to keep that information from the American people and from Congress.
0: You know, you said something earlier where you said sometimes you're considered dovish because you're saying, you know, you were considered dovish within the Pentagon because you would say, let's wait and let's not do anything. Let's see what happens. So here's a question to you. It feels like every time America does anything, it just goes wrong. So whether it's Vietnam, or it's Iraq, or it's the coup d'etat in 1953 of overthrowing the Iranian, uh, you know, democratically elected Mossadegh, mm-hmm. right? So how did it go? Because we know that Ali North with Iran-Contra, obviously, that didn't help our relationship with Iran at all, because Iran remains a theocracy that is oppressive to its people. And now we're, again, butting heads for 40 years, 40 plus years. So he went in there with a cake shaped like a key saying, hey, this is going to open up our relationship, but it really didn't. How did it work for Nicaragua? Was he able to at least clean up Nicaragua or did that just get worse and worse?
3: Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure it got worse and worse. So, <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I tell my, uh, you know, I had this great um, professor once upon a time. And he used to say he was he was a little dovish himself. He'd say, have you voted against every American war since, you know, the Civil War? You know, which is you know, the Spanish American War, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea. He said, you know, you'd actually look more right than you're wrong, right? Yeah. He goes, mm-hmm. you probably, he probably goes, you probably be embarrassed on Afghanistan, uh, maybe the Gulf War, and World War Two, and he's like, even World War One's arguable. And he basically said, you know, most of the time we get this wrong, um, and that's in part because, you know, foreign policy is not easy. You know, defending the country is not easy. Um, being the big dog in the world isn't easy either, right? You know, you, have, you think you have a lot of options, but you have far fewer, and gravity still matters to you. And, and, and you know, oftentimes you have less interest in these little fights than the, than the small dogs do. Um, but also because people can make mistakes. And the fact of the matter is, as I wrote this book, and I was inspired to write this book about during the Trump years, not because I sort of wanted to tell talk, tell all about the Trump years, but but because one of the few things I learned in government um, and was reminded today and day is that these are human beings making these decisions, right? And they're not that different than you and me. I know it's crazy to think that we're at all like Donald Trump, but I guarantee you we all have Trump-like days and want to send Trump-like tweets. Uh, and so I try to tell people and try to, like, tell my students and try to tell people I talk to about the book is, like, those people sitting in the White House situation Room aren't that different than you, right? Um, and that should either give you great comfort because the, the fact is human beings have the capacity for amazing things. They can come up with ideas, they can come up with uh, new ways of thinking in the in the blink of an eye, or it can give you great concern, which is that people screw up and they bring their own motives in and they can sort of shift American foreign policy in a direction that's bad. And so the fact of the matter is, is that the fundamental piece is these are humans uh, and learning their stories is important to understand American foreign policy, because the more you understand about the NSC in history, the more you'll understand it today. And they're right now like helping Donald Trump roll out his Middle East peace plan. And they're right now helping Donald Trump trying to make sense of Iran, his Iran policy. You know, it's not an easy job, um, but you should definitely know the people who do it uh, and what they're like.
0: Listen, Professor John, when you say things like that, it freaks me out because the truth Bring me no comfort. comfort (laughs) Because I actually I have that conversation with my wife a lot, where you have people in positions of power and you find out how much they fumbled it, Mm -hmm. and you go, "I thought this guy knew what he was doing," and you find out, no, they're just people like you and me. Now, this leads me to the question of. The people that came and testified during the impeachment trial in Congress, whether it was a Colonel Vindman or the Fiona Hill, some I of these other her. people. Now, these people, when I'm watching them, they seem like they did know what they were doing. Now, uh, if you could just elaborate a little bit on those witnesses and were they mostly members of the National Security Council? Were they? Because a lot of people try to do ad hominem attacks and say, oh, well, Vinman, uh, you know, speaks Russian, so he must be, you know, he's on, the, he's on their side or, or, or they just, you know, where were they? Do, you, do we know their political stance? Were they Republicans, Democrats? Was it a mix of both? And, and what is this? I mean, is it just straight politics when you talk to, like when I talk to a Republican friend and they go, well, you know, who are these guys? It was all hearsay. Well, was it hearsay yeah. or these guys seem like they knew what they were talking about? Can you can you get into those guys a little bit?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it's you know, these are sort of I think Lieutenant Colonel Binman might be the most famous National Security Council staffer since, or you know, Ollie North. Right. Like most people haven't known. They don't know who Megan O'Sullivan is, who I talked about a little while ago. And they don't know some of these other staffers. I mean, I think that the, the few things those that testified were sort of a mix there are a couple current staffers, right? There are a couple people like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who's an army officer who is on loan from the army to the NSC. Um, Most of the people who serve on the staff are loaned by other places in government. Um, and so they go there for one or two year terms and then they sort of go back. So in theory, Vindman will go back to the army and work his way up into another position and sort of continue his career. Um, and then uh, there were a few former staffers people had served in, and Fiona Hill, who was the senior director for Europe and Russia had been sort of a, you know, scholar and think tank person and had sort of gone into the administration at the beginning, I think hoping and sort of to sort of influence American foreign policy in the Trump administration. I mean, I think what they both had was a piece of the picture uh, and they got up there and told their piece of the picture. I don't think, and I think there was a strategic, effort by the Trump administration and by Trump himself to kind of limit who knew about the whole Ukraine scheme. So they had sort of, they, what you'd sort of say is when you're working on one of these issues and you're so focused on this, you focus like you're on Ukraine all the time, like that's your thing, right? And Vindman was the Ukraine director and had come from Ukraine. He was an immigrant. So, uh, you know, had cared about Ukraine his entire life, and so you're working on these issues, and then all of a sudden, like something weird happens in the in a decision, like something gets weird, weird, odd said, or you don't know what's going on, and you kind of go, wait, what, what just happened? It was like a, a a like a black swan just walked across the room. You just don't know why that happened. And so what they all seem to do is is they had a lot of those moments where this this policy wasn't working the way they thought it should, and they slowly started to sort of unpeel the onion and try to snoop around and figure it out. And they all eventually came to the conclusion that there was some, you know shadow scheme going on. Um, And that's what they sort of talked about was kind of like what it was like to work on the real policy, the official policy, and then find out that there was another one going on and that they weren't privy to it and and weren't allowed. I mean, the Vindman story is amazing because uh, somebody, um, a guy, uh, an NSE staffer, uh, who's a little more of a political operative and a sort of Trump guy had sort of been pretending to be the Ukraine director. The president thought this other staffer's name's Kash Patel, was the Ukraine director. And basically there was a meeting on Ukraine and um, Vindman went, I'm not on the list of people going to the meeting, but Kash Patel is, it, is. And John Bolton said, yeah, he, the president thinks he's the Ukraine director and, and I'm not in the mood to get in an argument with him. Wait, wait wait, so wait, 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 just, hold on, hold
0: on. Hold on. Stop, yeah, no, no, you, we, can't, you can't blaze you can't over that. You're telling me that there's a guy with a job and the president thinks some other dude has the job and he yeah. just shows up at the meeting, and then the yeah. National Security Council, the, the National Security Advisor Bolton tells the main guy, whose job is Vindman, who's it's yeah. his job. He goes, I-, "I can't even argue for you because the president thinks someone else." It's yeah. like it's like saying yeah. like you think like Big Bird has the job, but Elmo shows up at the meeting. And the head goes. Well, we're just going to let them think it's Elmo to
1: make them Muppets. (laughs) Well, whatever (laughs) they are, I'm just you're telling me. Wait a minute how how does (laughs) that
0: happen? You're you're telling us to think because you said you tell your students to go. They're just people like us. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Like they're going to make never happen to me. They're going to make some (laughs) decision mistakes. But if but you're telling me it's so bad that the wrong dude shows up at the meeting. That's like the remember the Jerry Seinfeld episode where? Oh yeah. Uh, George has George quit, quit, quit his job, and then he and then pretends he just, that he didn't. Quit. Then he shows up and pretends he didn't quit, and they just keep moving on yeah, like yes, be...
2: exactly. So, so, so this is if no, the it's professor, like your enthusiasm. If
1: the professor, the TA showed up, just started lecturing, and then every student thought the TA was the professor and disregarded the actual professor. The professor shows up, and professor they're like,
2: Gans. "No, no, no, he's now our professor." How does that happen?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's veep, you know, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's, it's every I'm telling you, it's human beings, but it's the human beings are like in a veep episode. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, the, not every day in government is perfect. Uh, and I've, I have read about a lot of them and experienced a few terrible ones. Uh, I didn't ever experience that, though. Um, and it sort of shows you just how dysfunctional Washington's gotten. Um, and I think that. Um, That that is, I think, why those of us who spend a lot of time thinking about this and writing about it and studying it sort of worry so much because we know even when you do actually have like a perfectly functioning, smart group of people working on this stuff, stuff gets screwed up. Just imagine if you have people like this uh, who sort of can't sort of actually get a meeting together with the real officials in government together are making decisions about war and peace. Uh, So that's why I don't sleep as well at night as I'd like to um, and why uh, I'm sorry to tell this story. And uh, I always tell people when I go to these meetings and try to talk about the book, I'm like, it's really hard to talk about a book that's probably not gonna make you feel awesome about your sort of government. Uh Um, But it's definitely one I think most Americans need to read.
1: Is that not an awkward meeting when the cash guy runs into Vindman and is like, Hey uh You did took you my tell- job
2: kinda of by accident Or what
0: about when Trump is calling Cash Patel, right? He's an Indian dude. I'm married to an Indian woman. He's calling him Vinman and he's like just Yeah. What if he's calling yeah. him the they, wrong wh- name? He's like, Oh yeah sure I'll right. go with Vinman. Why not?
3: Oh my God! Uh, you know, I, yeah, I my hunch, my hunch is that he wasn't calling a bidman. I think he really did believe that Cash Patel was his Ukraine director. So well, here, here's, uh, here's uh, you know,
0: here's what's crazy to me because in this situation, because you said under Iran Contra with Oliver North, there's a parallel foreign policy being run that is not running through the proper channels. Because really, our foreign policy needs to go. Correct me if I'm wrong through the president, but also a lot of times approved with Congress because Congress controls the purse, correct? Yeah,
3: I mean, for a lot of this stuff, like Broadly speaking, you don't go. I mean, even the Iran strike—he right, didn't even go to Congress to sort of give them a heads up to get approval. I mean, the the the, the president has a wide latitude to do this stuff without congressional uh, approval. Uh, you know, where they what Congress can get in the act is the day after uh, and oversight. Um, that's where they can get in the. But there's a lot of trouble that Trump can start, and then Congress would then have to see about fixing it on the back end, and it's hard to do.
0: Because here what we got is we've got the official policy of the United States with, when it comes to Ukraine, which is Congress, everyone got together, they said we need to fund uh, the, these weapons for the Ukraine to defend themselves against Russia. So you have the official American policy, everyone's on board, the administration is supposed to be on board, everyone's on board. Then you've got the National Security Council, who's, you, as you're saying, they're they're not answerable to anybody but the president, so they can kind of do in a way what they want to do but they agree with this policy then you've got this third policy going on that from the rudy giuliani who is oh, yeah. a crazy conspiracy theorist who's saying that first of all let's go let, let's let's hold the funds until they agree to to announce the investigation of biden and furthermore they were the ones who hacked the election and uh there's this server somewhere let's go find the server so in a way, there was three policies going on, no?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that you really, it probably breaks down really the two, right? There's some on the NSC and some on Congress who are pushing for this official policy and some the, in the Defense Department and everybody else who are operating on this official policy. And then there are some in the official, like there are people who were helping Trump in government, uh, and out. You talked about out, Rudy Giuliani, but the in-government, like Mike Pompeo was helping him, it, it seems uh, clear. Uh, mm-hmm. His ambassador to the EU, uh, Gordon Sondland, was helping. Uh, and he had people like Cash Patel and others on the NSC who were helping. Uh, and in the White House, um, at the, with the chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney and others. And so it's a very complicated story and one that like we know just the, the like tip of one phone call. Like mm-hmm. This is like, We know one piece of this mess and if you think that like donald trump is making he's making phone calls like this every week you we have no idea all that is being done in our name right now in washington dc um and you know this is like we only know about this because somebody got fed up and said something right like a whistleblower said something that's the only reason we know about this
0: you mentioned Um, the phone call and you were saying in the book or in one of your articles i think that the NSC listens in on these calls, correct? Are they always, like there's a bunch of guys on the phone listening, guys and girls?
3: Yeah, so usually there's people in the room, and then there's people who are listening, right? Um, in a sort of what they call like a control room, where they sort of sit in, and and the call goes through there, and they listen in. And sometimes there's even a machine that sort of does like voice recognition, typing up of a rough transcript. So they're like running it through in real time. So it's kind of an amazing thing. They don't typically record, uh, but there's a lot of people listening in on those calls now. You know. We don't know. Donald Trump still has an unsecure phone, call, cell phone that he runs around with. So who knows who's calling that uh, or texting that all day and night? We don't know. And so there's in theory and in typical administrations, everybody, every head of state call would have several staffers listening to it.
0: Wow. So before I let you go, as we're learning how uh, grim it is. In terms of who's <laughs> running the show here, I have Scrim. no idea. Yeah. No,
2: um, no one's at
0: the wheel. Why should anyone, why should Americans care about the Ukraine? You know, this this recently happened where Mike Pompeo asked that uh, NPR reporter, "Do you think Americans care about the Ukraine?" Basically saying nobody cares. Why okay. should uh, Americans care?
1: Hmm.
3: It's a good question. Uh, you know, I think, I and and I don't like the tone Pabea took, but I think there's a little bit of uh, truth in the sense that I think most Americans who are getting up every day don't spend that lot of time thinking about Ukraine. Uh, I think that we're, why Ukraine matters today is that Russia is basically trying to run that country and push that country around. And if they get away with it there, they could get away with it in Europe Uh, they could get away with it elsewhere and that will eventually matter to us in real hard terms. And so we stand up for principles on ukraine because those principles matter uh sovereignty matters a state being able to have make its own decisions matters a yeah state we're the only country
1: that gets to bully other countries other countries yeah, can't bully I mean,
3: other yeah. countries. <laughs> that's our job you know yeah. i'm not i'm not a big fan of us bullying either um and so uh you know that's why that's why i always get to call me a dove I, I get called a dove from time to time so but i think that's why um you know i think that having principles standing for those principles and standing up for them when they're pushed when they're sort of violated is what is the easiest, safest course. Um, And I think that it's one of those ones that if we did it more, we'd be safer and the world would be a better place. Um, And I think more Americans would sort of trust what those in government say. I mean, I think that's your point about sort of us pushing around other countries. And the reason that the credibility uh, on this issue is and reason people don't always believe what people say about Ukraine is because they've heard a lot of, BS from people in Washington over the years. And the, the, the credibility of Washington on foreign policy matters is, is much lower than it should be. And that's why people like Donald Trump mouth off on Twitter before they run for president and think they know everything mm. and other people believe them. And so that's why I'm a big fan of sort of opening the NSC to the world and so that people can sort of see better and, and understand that most of the people on the staff are pretty good people who are trying to do their best. And they're good public servants, like Alexander Vidman, and so showing them, I think, would help the credibility of the U.S. government and Washington at a time where it desperately needs it.
0: Professor Gans, you're such a dove, my I gosh! Know, what it. is wrong <laughs> with you? We um, listen, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. I'm gonna go around the room find out what everybody learned on this episode well, of Back to School. That, yes, what?
1: I want to know what happened to Megan O'Sullivan. I <laughs> like she seems. Oh yeah, like what a happened to the, the redheaded she Megan okay?
0: O'Sullivan who, who pushed yeah, for the she's... surge?
3: She's at the Harvard. She's at
1: Harvard. She's teaching at Harvard.
0: So All she's right. up to Harvard. Uh, All right. There you go. She All knew, right. she knew her stuff. Pushing agendas like, let's go attack. She, yeah. like, and she then she's thought. like,
2: oh, I'm going to retreat into academia.
0: Caitlin, what did you learn on this episode?
2: Um, I, I feel like... Maybe some of my worst fears were confirmed that it's kind of like a <laughs> car that's like maybe like a dog is at the wheel or something.
0: Okay. And
1: okay. Okay. Like the a, What do they
0: say? The inmates are running the asylum, yeah, right? Yeah. Tehran, what did you learn?
1: That I would have been an amazing NSC employee. Staff, yeah. I yeah. think I would have been for the sure. chief and I might have been a uh, head speech writer as well. They could I
0: have learned, mistaken you for someone else. Even. I learned that Trump thinks that uh, uh, an Indian dude looks like a Ukrainian dude. And you just need to show up at the meeting. If you're a foreigner, just show up at the meeting and be like, you, know, you look like you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Ukraine. What should, Ukraine. Yeah. what should we do? What should we do? Listen, uh, <sighs> uh, Professor Gans, how do, uh, how do people reach you on Twitter or Instagram or on social media if they want to find out more?
3: So Twitter is best. I'm John. I'm at John Gans Jr. So at John Gans Jr. Uh, and the book is available everywhere. Amazon's probably the best place or IndieBound. And you know, uh, appreciate people sort of getting out there and just giving it a read. I think it's uh, worth your time.
0: Absolutely. The book is called White House Warriors. It's all about the National Security Council, the, 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 what they've done, who they are, and the history of it. And it's and it's really important. I think first of all, it's it's very interesting but more importantly it's very important to know that there's people there and how they're influencing our foreign policy and where we stand so i appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today professor john gans thank you for being on back to school with Brani. thanks so much back to
1: school yeah
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Back to School with Maz Jobrani. We hope you're enjoying it. We hope you're having fun. And we hope you're learning something. So make sure to let your friends know. Share it on iTunes. Share the clips from YouTube. Just get it out there. However you're listening, let your friends know to tune in to Back to School with Maz Jobrani.
1: Back to School.